0: This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature.
1: Hello and welcome to The Hindu's on Books podcast. I'm Sohasini Heather. With me is author and former diplomat Shamsar. And his new book is out this month, How China Sees India and the World, the authoritative account of the India-China relationship. With dates, events, personalities. Uh, Mr. Saran's book actually just sums up volumes and volumes of Chinese history, giving it this very comprehensive but uniquely Indian perspective as well over the millennia. Uh, We're going to discuss some of the history, but most importantly, talk about what we can learn about China that will help India deal with this challenge today and in the future. Thanks so much for speaking with us, Ambassador Saran.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Suhasree.
1: Well, you look at various factors over the centuries in your book. In fact, you've got a detailed timeline, really, of what was happening in China, what was happening in India. There's the historic experiences of the tribes, uh, the spread of Buddhism, several travelers that came across from China to India, wrote about India, the negative image of India during the opium wars, and then India's shelter to the Dalai Lama, the Tibet question, then the war with China. My question really is, as you look at all these areas of interface between India and China, two countries that share this very long border, what really decides the India-China relationship today? Is it about history? Is it about current-day realities? Or is it about strategies of the future and tactics?
0: If you ask me, it would be all of the above, (laughs) in a sense. Because uh, what I have tried to demonstrate in the book is that History and culture are important because they, in a sense, form the prism through which a country, a people uh, look at the world around them. Uh, So that history of China is very important to understand because it explains some of the reason why China behaves in particular ways. But uh, yes, of course, we have a completely different set of circumstances today. The modern world is very different from what it was in the past. India is a very different country from what it was in the past. So is China. And our current sort of uh, uh, challenges which we face, the kind of crises that we sometimes have to confront, uh, these two are very different from the past. Uh, So what I have tried to do is that in dealing with current realities, dealing with current challenges in the relationship between India and China, are we able to go back into history and see what is the way in which China looks at India today or looks at the world today, drawing from these templates of the past? That is really what is the effort in this particular book.
1: In fact, this week, we mark a solemn anniversary. It's two years since the clashes in Galwan the worst casualties, at least Indian, uh, 20 Indian soldiers, but we don't really know how many Chinese as well, died in those clashes. And it was really a, a record of sorts in, in terms of the worst casualties in decades after this kind of tenuous peace we've had. Why do you think the Galwan clash and all that followed has happened?
0: As you said, at least since 1960, 1976, I think, not a shot was fired in anger, you know, at the India-China border. Uh, In fact, India-China border for a long time was seen as a kind of a model of uh, how two countries have enough maturity to be able to deal with a legacy from the past, a disputed border, and have maintained, uh, you know, peace and tranquility at the border and allowed, you know, the relationship in other areas uh, to flourish in a sense. What Galwan represents is a departure from that particular trend that we have had in the past uh, decades. Uh, in fact, why did this happen? Well, it is sometimes difficult to really decode uh, the motivations on the Chinese side. But let me try and unpack a few uh, elements. One is that I have argued in the book that China's view of power is very high It is very, uh, shall I say, sensitive to uh, the balance of power amongst major powers. And I think uh, in the context of the growing asymmetry of power between India and China, the sensitivity which China may have displayed uh, to Indian concerns in the past, uh, perhaps that sensitivity has diminished. That is one aspect. So, Why did China do this? Because it thought it could do this and uh, get away uh, with it, in a sense. Secondly, there is also a local factor to my mind, because what has been happening over the last decade or so is that while there has been very major improvement of infrastructure on the Chinese side of the border, India, which was lagging behind, actually began to start catching up. And so there has been a considerable investment in border infrastructure on the Indian side. And what has this resulted? What this has resulted in is that, you know, whereas in the very remote areas of Ladakh, where Indian patrols and Chinese patrols perhaps had infrequent encounters and There were many places where there were no encounters at all, thanks to the improvement in the border infrastructure. uh, These encounters between the patrols has, you know, very much increased in uh, number. So the kind of protocols that we have had to handle such confrontations, where essentially each side has. Conveyed that it is its own territory that you know the other side is intruding in. They would um, disengage after making that point. What has been happening over the past couple of years is that uh, these encounters have become perhaps a, a little more tense in in nature, little more uh, shall I say assertiveness on either side, which we had not seen before. Don't forget that this also happened uh, in the Doklam incident. Uh, so. Uh, It is not as if this is a complete one-off, but we have seen a trend that at the border, there have been more frequent encounters... And secondly, a sense of assertiveness on both sides has been perhaps much more on display uh, than in the past. So this is uh, perhaps a local factor which also should be taken into account. Right.
1: You said that there's a general increase in China's assertiveness. In fact, obviously, when we see the South China Sea, China's actions there against its neighbors, Uh, also what is happening with Taiwan and the uh, Chinese uh, statements that have been coming out in the last uh, few weeks in particular. Uh, There is a theory that this is part of the general assertiveness of China when it comes to its uh, boundaries or what it sees as its boundaries. Another part, as you pointed out, is to somehow maybe try and stop India's infrastructure that has been increasing in the last few years. Uh, Perhaps China saw a threat to its own plans to increase infrastructure when it comes to Karakoram Highway and the CPEC. Do you think it's essentially about what was happening at the line of actual control or something outside of it?
0: No, I don't think it was only to do with local factors. I did mention the local factors, but I think you have to see it in the larger context of both the overall relationship between India and China, but also the overall geopolitical context. I think both these are important. Yeah, so, uh, as I have pointed out in the book, that in the India-China relationship, at least since the global financial and economic crisis of 2007-2008, there has been a growing asymmetry of power between the two countries in terms of economic capabilities in terms of military capabilities, even in terms of, you know, technological capabilities. in a sense, uh, So China believes that it has the wherewithal uh, to assert its interests vis-a-vis India in a manner that may not have been possible. What is the geopolitical context? The geopolitical context is that just as the asymmetry of power between India and China has been expanding since the 2007-2008, uh, on the other side, the asymmetry of power between U.S. and China, the two pure powers in a sense, uh, that uh, has been diminishing. Relatively speaking, China's power vis-à-vis the United States has been rising in all the metrics of so power, economic, military, as well as uh, technological, even though uh, China is still behind the United States of uh, America. Now, this has given China the sense that the geopolitical canvas, in a sense, is today more conducive to the assertion of Chinese power than was the case before. And in that context, India's growing relationship with the United States is also seen as somehow, you know, not a very friendly act towards China, that China perceives a certain kind of a threat arising from this closer relationship between India and the US. So, That geopolitical context, the India-China relationship context is important in assessing why, you know, we have today more tension at the border than we have had with us. Right.
1: And that's as far as the geopolitical situation goes as well. If I could also turn to that other story, uh, the other theory, if I may. Doklam, as you mentioned, was one point of conflict between India and China. It was followed by the Wuhan summit, the Wuhan meeting between President Xi Jinping and Prime Minister Narendra Modi one-on-one, where they actually spent a lot of time discussing matters. It looked like the situation had had seen a much more sort of easing of tensions, if you like, between India and China. Subsequently, there was 2019 and India's uh, reorganization of Jammu and Kashmir. What was interesting at the time was that China put out two protests. One was a slightly milder protest about what was happening in Jammu and Kashmir, but a fairly stern protest about the changes in Ladakh, which China said was disputed territory and that there shouldn't be any kind of uh, changes to territories that would change the status quo there. Subsequently, of course, there was the Home Minister uh, of India, Amit Shah, saying in Parliament that India planned to retrieve its territories both from Pakistan as well as from China, referring to Aksai Chin. Many have suggested that the amassing of Chinese troops followed this trajectory as well. Followed came after all of these events in 2019. Do you think this was one of the factors?
0: They could have been, but don't uh, forget that uh, even after the events in Jammu and Kashmir that you mentioned and the change in the status of uh, Ladakh, we had another informal summit in Mabalipura. I think, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, this happened in August and the informal second informal summit took place in November, perhaps of the same year. And so by all accounts, <laughs> this second uh, informal summit was also uh, very positive and very forward looking. Uh, so even if there was Chinese concern over those events, it does not seem to have stood in the way of China finding value in continuing with the uh, series of uh, informal uh, summits. So I think we have to look beyond uh, just those as, uh, you know, the driving factors.
1: The, the reason I make that point, and you're absolutely right, the Mamlapuram summit happened then in uh, October of 2019. Oh, but okay. It, it was preceded very closely uh, just before President Xi Jinping traveled to India. He invited Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan to Beijing. He issued a statement about Jammu and Kashmir, which India would have found very offensive, except that they were expecting a visit from Xi Jinping, so didn't protest, perhaps. After the visit to India, it wasn't a standalone visit. Mr. Xi went to Nepal, announced a number of uh, agreements there on infrastructure with Nepal. Uh, I ask this in the context that even now, two years later, there is a sense That New Delhi has chosen to remain, if you like, discreet, if you like, diplomatic, not actually calling out China when it comes to its actions on the line of actual control. Uh, It's two years since the Galwan anniversary. It's also two years since Prime Minister Modi actually said that no one has entered Indian territory, that nobody is inside Indian territory. Of course, uh, there is a disputed territory, but presumably he wasn't speaking about the the age-old dispute between India and China. My question really is, is how does China view this? Is it easier to be more discreet and deal with China bilaterally? Or is it important for India at this point to be much more clear about where it sees its problems?
0: The fact that we have had, what, about 14 rounds of talks uh, between uh, India and China on the uh, situation on the border, uh, that would seem to indicate that there has been, <laughs> in fact, uh, encroachment on the Indian side of the border. Otherwise, what are we talking If uh, Indian patrols are not being allowed to uh, go to areas which they have been uh, patrolling in the past, Is that not uh, something which is a change in the material situation on the border? So I think uh, whatever may be the statements which may have been made, the fact is that we are dealing with a situation where China has, in fact, advanced territorially uh, in areas which we have uh, not the historical areas, as you say, but uh, areas which in recent times we have not only been claiming as our own, but we have been establishing, uh, we have been exercising jurisdiction. Uh, over Now, whether uh, or not it is a good policy to, um, you know, remain somewhat low-key on this issue, uh, that is a matter of debate. Perhaps you can explain this by pointing to the fact that we are engaged in a series of, you know, consultations or negotiations with the Chinese side on trying to, you know, get back to the status quo uh, ante. Some progress has been made, as we saw on the Pangkung Lake side and uh, also in Galwan itself. Uh, after the incident which took place. Perhaps there is an expectation that through further somewhat <laughs> tortuous negotiations, maybe we might be able to make some further advance. So uh, I would describe uh, that a little uh, discretion on the part of the Indian side in commenting on the situation at the border to perhaps uh, the expectation that uh, we are in an ongoing negotiating process and that might be helped if we do not you know make a very public display of our of our differences on this issue
1: interesting uh, you you spoke about a, a return to status quo ante 2020 do you think that is still a possibility given that even the government no longer really uses the term status quo ante anymore in its statements
0: well i think it should be an objective Because China has made a material change in the uh, status quo, which both sides had agreed repeatedly that they will not unilaterally try to alter. So I think Indian side is fully justified in asserting that, you know, the end result, if relations have to come back on track, is in fact going back to where we were. Because both sides had committed uh, to not, as I said, uh, changing the situation unilaterally and China changed it. Unilaterally, uh, this is a clear violation of understanding between our two sides. Now, we can uh, uh, certainly, as I said, argue why the Chinese have done what they have. Uh, but in terms of, you know, our ability to, you know, manage this uh, relationship, making that stand on the Indian side is important. Uh, certainly, uh, I would say we should not give up that position.
1: All right. In an interview to the Hindu, the external affairs minister, S.J. Shankar said, uh, after all, that uh, a clash like the Sundarang uh, clash in the 1980s took as much as six to seven years before we saw a new uh, agreement between India and China, the basis really for the border agreements that you just referred to uh, take place. Do you think we're looking at a similar timeline that, in, in essence, an entire decade or nearly a decade could go by before we see a stand down of Indian and Chinese troops around the LAC? And how does that really impact India?
0: It would be difficult to predict whether or not there will be a much longer time frame within which this could be resolved or some understanding reached out. Yes, External Affairs Minister Jaisankar is right that it took a fairly long time for us to be able to resolve the Sundurong issue. In a sense, there is also a parallel because uh, in Sundurong too also, we were very quick to move our forces to the, you know, ridge that is uh, on our side of the Sundurong uh, River. It is called the Hathungla, Lurungla, Sulungla Ridge, where, you know, the Indian army established itself very swiftly and prevented any further ingress by the uh, Chinese uh, side. Uh, So, here also, you have had a situation where, perhaps unexpectedly for the Chinese, there was a very quick and a fairly large response in terms of, you know, troop deployments by the Indian side. So, you know, the fact is that we have prevented successfully any further ingress by the Chinese side. So, there is that uh, sort of parallel. But, you know, in the case of Doklam, uh, there was also... A feeling that, uh, like Sumdurong too that may also take a long time to resolve, but we were actually able to diffuse this within a shorter period of time. And I relate that to the overall, you know, geopolitical situation. Because if you remember, you know, there was a BRICS uh, summit which was coming up, which is like what is going to be happening uh, very soon now. You had uh, also a interest in China looking at, a greater pressure that it was facing from the U- United States in many ways and therefore it was looking at how it could you know in a, in a sense uh, diffuse the situation on a, on its western flank so that it could be better positioned to deal with uh, what it saw as a bigger challenge on the eastern uh, flank on the south china sea uh, flank now could there be another similar kind of a geopolitical situation which may arise in the foreseeable future where China once again sees it in its interest to bring down the temperature as it were on this front so that it is better able to deal with uh, the situation developing on its eastern flank, uh, particularly in the wake of uh, the ongoing uh, Ukraine war. Because my sense is that China is somewhat more on the defensive today than it has been in the past. Uh, so, will that bring about some change of, you know, uh, the, its position, Is posture vis-a-vis China? It is, it is possible. It is certainly possible, but we have to wait and see. And for that reason, I think it is important for us to keep asserting our stand that you know, in order to get the relationship back on track, we need to go back to status quo activity.
1: As you said, this time again, there is a BRICS summit due to be hosted by China. It will be a virtual summit, and we understand that it's all set for uh, the third week of June. And we will see Prime Minister Narendra Modi on this uh, virtual summit along with President Xi Jinping, and Russian President Putin, as well as the leaders of Brazil and South Africa. I want to ask you a little more about what you were talking about, the geopolitical context of the war in Ukraine and India's reaction to it. Do you think that where India stands today, and the fact that India's had this very good meeting with the United States and other countries in the Quad, is it going to mean that India will actually move further westward, strengthen its engagement with the United States and allies? Is it going to mean that there will be uh, a strengthening, if you like, of common cause with Russia and China? Because after all, India has been concerned about the same kind of sanctions, uh, weaponization of the economy, if you like. Or do you think it's just going to strengthen an older Indian assertion of non-alignment as a policy? If you were to look into a uh, crystal ball a like year from today, which do you think of these three parts is India going to choose?
0: Overall, I think it is already clear that thanks to, in some sense, uh, the activities of the Chinese on our uh, border, and not just on our border, but the general sort of hostility that China has displayed uh, towards India, India has gone much further in strengthening its relationship with the United States, America, with the West in general, you know, signing on to not only the Quad, but also now the IPF. So this is already uh, happened, you know, the crystallization of India's strategic engagement, strategic partnership with the United States and in general with the West is already a reality. Uh, it's a question of how far will India go in that direction. So I think what China may want to see is that India... Uh, still retains a certain degree of, you know, engagement with China, with Russia, because at the present moment, it is both in the interest of Russia and China to somehow display to the world that we are not standing alone that they are not uh, isolated, that a major country like India and Brazil and, you know, South Africa, which are, you know, middle powers in a sense, are not willing to follow the Western uh, approach of trying to isolate the two uh, countries. So, optically, India's participation in BRICS is something important to China and to uh, Russia as, uh, as well. So, in that sense, there is a certain opportune kind of moment for India. I don't think it is a matter of choosing whether we align ourselves with uh, China, Russia on one side or with the West on the other side. Uh, if the position is much more nuanced. I think it is not an either or situation. Uh, so it's a question of, you know, how India in its own interest also tries to maintain a certain room for maneuver for itself uh, in the current situation. It doesn't have to go you know, in the direction of a full-fledged military alliance, for example, with the United States of America. It has managed that partnership, I think, rather well over the last uh, decade or so, without losing, you know, its own sort of strategic space, as it were. And the effort now would still be To see how in this changing sort of geopolitical, you know, uh, environment, India is still able to maintain that pace for itself. So going to the BRICS summit is, in a sense, uh, trying to assert that we, you know, want to maintain uh, some degree of, you know, agency as far as the current uh, situation is concerned. But I do not think that there is any realistic possibility of India actually deciding to align itself with Russia and China in any meaningful manner. I don't think that is a possibility anymore.
1: Interesting. And when you look at the present, how much of what you are seeing today about China is actually really a a kind of repetition of the past? I ask this because in your book, uh, you talk so much about how China almost rewrites its own history. It reimagines narratives, puts itself firmly as the Middle Kingdom, almost as if it was the sort of only power in Asia at a time, uh, that it sees others as uh, vassal states, that it sees Tibet and other parts of its extremities as part of China, even though it has always actually been at war or been uh, under invasion from these very parts. Give us a sense of how you see China's behavior today as a kind of throwback to the past, or is it?
0: It is a throwback to the past in terms of, you know, using a certain historical narrative as a legitimizing instrument for what China's current policies are. As I mentioned earlier, that China's cause of its history, because of its culture, has looked upon par in a very hierarchical terms. You know, a sense of hierarchy is uh, not just in terms of international relations, but the hierarchy is a deeply embedded cultural trait in terms of family, in terms of, you know, the, the relationship between the state and uh, the people. So it is it is something which uh, China is also trying to extend in terms of its relationship with the rest of the world. So in that sense, The fact that China has, in fact, become the second largest economy in the world. It is um, the second-ranking power in terms of its uh, economic capabilities, in terms of uh, its military capabilities. It is aspiring to become a front-ranking technological power. So it certainly believes that it is entitled to a position of dominance as far as the power structure is concerned, certainly in Asia if not the rest of the world, and more importantly, that the rest of the world and certainly the rest of Asia should defer uh, to China. Uh, recognize that that position of dominance by China. Uh, I have referred to a particular incident, a very amusing incident in the book, where uh, at the ASEAN Regional Forum meeting in uh, Vietnam, I think, when the issue of uh, South China Sea was raised by some of the Southeast Asian countries, Yang Jiechi, who was then the foreign minister and who's now the state counselor, uh very angrily uh, said that, uh, you know, you are all small countries and China is a very big country. And that is just a fact, <laughs> you know. Uh, so he was really asserting this uh, principle. That, uh, you know, others have to recognize that uh, China is uh, the leading power in uh, Asia and the others have to defer to China. Uh, This is uh, something which you find today that the centrality which China is talking about. Uh, You remember that uh, at the last party congress, Xi Jinping spoke about how China is moving to the center of the international system. So, if China is moving to the center of the international system, can it draw legitimacy from the past? Yes, well, that is what China is suggesting, that we have always been in this particular position. Uh, We are only going back to where we were in history. Or if you take, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road Initiative is being presented as a revival of the ancient Silk Road. You know, China is suggesting that the old Silk Road had uh, China at the very center of those, uh, the old global trading network, which is not true. Silk Roads were a network of uh, roads in which there were many participating countries. And China was, in a sense, at one end of that particular network. But the way in which the Belt and Road Initiative is being presented as nothing more but China going back to being the nodal center of the modern You know, trading networks, the modern economic uh, network, just as it was in the past. So, you know, history is then used in order to somehow suggest that there is a certain inevitability about China's emergence as the front ranking bar in the world and others should accept it. Because this is the natural order of things in a, in a sense. In fact, and that India has resisted this uh, is is something which uh, leads them to think that India needs to be, you know, wrapped on the knuckle for that.
1: In fact, you have a very strong uh, sentence in there where you say an imagined history is being for, yes. put forward to seek legitimacy for China's claims. Do you think that this imagined history that China has put forth is, in fact, is something that is uh, is being accepted in the world, if you like, because, you know, there are so many countries that are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. India itself has signed on to some of China's other initiatives, not the BRI, but onto the AIIB or the NDB. Is there a, a sense then that the world has been uh, misled, if you like, about China's history and therefore is willing to invest in its future?
0: So, Hazuni, every country tells stories about itself. <laughs> right. So, I think how they tell the story about themselves is also gives you an insight into how uh, the country thinks or what its uh, strategy is likely to be. What uh, I wanted to point out was that say why in some sense it is imagined history. So, if you read Chinese narrative, there is almost a continuous sort of a line from the ancient dynasties to the present, as if this is a linear kind of a progression of, you know, eternal China in in a sense. Um, What has been brushed over is the fact that for half its history, uh, China was under alien rule. I mean, they say, oh, India is (laughs) like a slavish country because it has been under foreign domination for uh, so many uh, centuries. Well. China has been, as I said, for 50% of the time of its uh, history, it has also been under alien rule. As recently as the Manchu Empire in China till 1911. Now, whether or not the rest of the world has bought into this history, partly depends upon how good China is at telling its story. (laughs) And secondly, how much uh, people in the world know about that Chinese history. So part of the reason why I wrote this book was that in India, how many people are aware of this Chinese history, which is very different from what China is telling telling the world. Right. Or the kind of argument that China has put forward uh, for you know Tibet being a part of China. It says Tibet has uh, always, through history, been a part of China. That's simply not true. So I think it is important to call out some of these aspects of Chinese reading of its own history because it does not correspond to facts. Now, the current situation is that when uh, Xi Jinping talks about the China dream or he's talking about, you know, how China is now moving to the center of the uh, world, in a sense, it is becoming a model for other countries to follow. These are terms which China has not used in the past. So, that of, of certainly being a model for the rest of the world is not something that China has been saying before. So, this is a part and parcel of uh, trying to get a certain international legitimacy for what it sees as its entitlement, in a sense, to centrality in the global system. Which is, today after Ukraine, <laughs> I argue that it has taken a bit of a knock.
1: Uh, and you have made the point that China has made a bad bet when it comes to Ukraine. Of course, there's lots more in your book about uh, what you call calling out China's history. Uh, there's also a very sort of disquieting theme, if you like, in your book where you say China sees India as a teacher by negative example. Explain that to us. What is this perception of India in China that perhaps explains its attitude towards India today?
0: There is a certain ambivalence that China has towards India. Because if you look at earlier history, India is seen as a parallel center of culture and civilization. China has always felt that it is, uh, you know, a center of very advanced culture and civilization. But it's the mandala that China had in the past was, we are the center and we have concentric circles of less civilized, less cultured countries around us so that also feeds into that sense of hierarchy that i uh, mentioned but india did not fall within that schema in a sense because india was seen as a alternate center of advanced culture and civilization particularly since buddhism came from india to china and it was many uh, chinese pilgrims monks who went to india to gather authentic buddhist scriptures they went to very famous universities like nalanda and vikramshila to learn under you know ancient uh, indian masters uh, so there was even a certain sense of reverence for india during that particular period as a alternate center of culture and civilization perhaps even in some sense, superior to uh, China, because after all, Buddhism (laughs) came from India to China. You don't see a similar uh, imprint of China on India, right?
1: No Confucianism, in a sense, in India or other parts of Asia.
0: Yes. So you you have then a period where contact between the two sides become infrequent and almost each country falls off the other's radar screen, in a sense, because Buddhism itself dies in India. Uh, the contacts, regular contacts between the two countries diminish over a period of time. The Islamic invasions take place uh, in India. The contacts become even less than before. So there is a period of almost seven or eight hundred years where the two countries don't really figure in each other's, you know, sort of consciousness. When China then comes face to face with India again after this period of some 700-800 years, it is an India which is under British colonial rule and it is an India which is used by the British Im- British imperialists for its numerous assaults against China, whether it is the opium wars or the foisting of the opium trade on China and how Indians were instruments of that. And so the negativity about India developed from that particular period. So that's why I say this is what China must not become. That was the discourse during the latter half of the you know 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, that India was not the future that China should have. So that is why it is important for China to uh, really confront the Western challenge. And of course, how to confront the Western challenge, you know, there was a debate about that, but uh, this was certainly clear to the Chinese uh, intellectual class, the Chinese elite, that we must avoid the fate that has been India's. That is why I say it is this uh, phrase which I have used, uh, that uh, India is a teacher by negative exam.
1: Right. Um, very, very interesting. And uh, we are coming towards the end of our conversation about the book. But as you can see, so much more to speak about in the book. I want to come finally to the idea of how India going forward must deal with the challenge from China. One of the themes, one of the points you make again and again is that India must learn more about China. Instead of shutting itself off to China studies, to the language, India must learn more about China to address the challenge. The second thing you say is that India has a better chance of meeting the China challenge if it remains committed to the values enshrined in its constitution and upholds de- democratic institutions in relation to the way China deals with these issues. Um, and finally, interestingly, you have a story in there where you say that essentially the Chinese belief that you must win the war by stealing into the mind of the adversary. Tell us then how you think India should really go about dealing with the China challenge over the next uh, few years.
0: So, in terms of, you know, stealing into the mind of the adversary, you know, I think it is the reason why I have said that it is very important for India to really understand China better, to study China better. We have uh, very little familiarity with China, just as China has very little familiarity with India. You know, we are both prisoners of various stereotype images of each other. So, I think this is uh, something which needs uh, to be addressed because... China is not going anywhere. You know, China is a big challenge for India today, and it is likely to remain the most significant challenge for India going forward. So understanding China, where it comes from, what are the drivers of its uh, perceptions regarding India, but not just India, but the rest of the world. I think that is extremely important. Secondly, in terms of if we do begin to, you know, familiarize ourselves with China, how do we see ourselves, you know, dealing with this challenge going forward. So I have pointed out uh, two things. One is that I certainly believe that if there is any country which has the potential not only to match China, but to even, in a sense, surpass China okay, in terms of the metrics of power that we are talking about, whether it is the economy, whether it is uh, its military and even in technology. Perhaps that is only India in terms of the size of its population, the uh, size of the country itself, uh, and also being a civilizational state <laughs> like uh, China itself. It is a state potentially in the same league as uh, China. That re- of course requires uh, that uh, India needs to get back to a higher uh, growth trajectory. There is no alternative to building up our own capabilities. Not necessarily matching China uh, in every respect, but uh, certainly, I think overall, our experience has been that if India is seen as shrinking that power gap with China, our diplomatic space, our strategic space, our room for maneuver increases. So, it is extremely important that we should, in a way, single-mindedly focus attention on really building up our economic uh, strength because that's the foundation of any other uh, strength in terms of technology or in terms of uh, our military. Now, today I have argued that we are in a benign geopolitical moment because we have very strong partnerships with the United States of America, with Japan, with uh, Europe, who may be relatively in decline. Certainly vis-a-vis China, they are relatively in decline. But I also argue that they remain the repositories of very advanced technology, of important sources of capital, which can, in fact, help India transform itself. They have today an interest in India becoming stronger because precisely they see, as I said, India is perhaps the only credible counterweight to uh, China. Uh, And therefore, it is in their interest to try and build up India. So why can't we leverage that favorable geopolitical movement in order to transform India's own economic prospects? Secondly, as I have said, that India needs to be, perhaps one should say, faithful (laughs) uh, to its own uh, civilizational attributes. So if uh, China has a certain strength, derived from its relative homogeneity. India has its strength in terms of its ability to handle immense diversity, immense plurality. In a sense, what our constitution tries to demonstrate is that plurality is a strength for India. It's not something which can undermine its unity. So, if we are able to draw on that strength, leverage that asset, we have a better chance to deal with the China challenge, not by trying to become another China. This is very important. So we have to work on both fronts uh, in in a sense, both the political side as well as on the economic side. But I do think that currently, perhaps a certain window of opportunity has opened, uh, which India should try and make uh, use of. Thank you.
1: Certainly very interesting. And and these are conclusions born of your study. So this is about uh, Ambassador Saran's experience, as well as his insight into what he has seen of China, his own understanding of the language, as well as the country's history, where he says India must learn to study more about its uh, neighbor and its challenge. It it must uh, strengthen itself particularly economically, as well as stay true to its own constitution and democratic underpinnings. Ambassador Shansaran, and this has been a delightful conversation. The book, ladies and gentlemen, is How China Sees India and the World, the authoritative account of the India-China relationship. Thank you so much for speaking to us.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Swazli.
1: And if you've been listening, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parlay on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at Socmed4, S-O-C-M-E-D4 at the rate thehindu.co.in.